Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined in the studio today with my fellow co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. It's been a while. I know. It's been so long. I feel like you and Kate have been having all the fun without me. I know. It's true. Well, we'll have to... We're going to reunite Listener, stay tuned. Exactly, yes. On this week's show, we have a conversation that was taped for the LARB Book Club with author George Saunders about his new book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life. So, Medea, besides that really long title, and that was not me editorializing, dear listeners, that is in fact the entire title, it's a thrill to have somebody like George Saunders on the show. So the conversation is between George, myself, and Boris, the editor-in-chief at LARB, who is also a translator from Russian into English. And uh, the book is a really interesting book. It is a collection of essays on short stories written by Russian writers um, that George Saunders usually teaches to a class at Buffalo. And so we talked about the short stories and why he chose them and why he thinks that they are instructive both for readers and writers. So you and Boris actually have a unique language connection to to these writers in the sense that both of you are native speakers of Russian. Did you grow up kind of reading Gogol and Turgenev, you know, and these kind of guys in the original or did you read them mostly in English in school? I read them in English. Boris, okay. I'm I'm certain Boris has read all of these in Russian. So he actually has right. a probably more intimate connection to them than I do. I am a very, very slow reader in Russian. And so if I had to attempt this in Russian, we would not be here today. We would have to delay the taping of this <laughs> show for, for another few months. Fortunately, so, no, fortunately for listeners, they've all been translated quite beautifully so into English, you know, which right. is obviously and, the way that I encountered their work. Yes, and George Saunders treats them as if they were written in English, essentially. Okay. So so our conversation is really, really dives deep into the content of these stories and into really what he values about them. So it's, it's a lot of fun. All right, well, let's get to it. Let's do it. Greetings, LARP Book Club members and Radio Hour listeners. I'm Boris Straluk, Editor-in-Chief of the LA Review of Books, and by my virtual side is Medea Ocher, co-host of the Radio Hour. Our guest today, and I'm very, very happy to be saying this, is the beloved American author George Saunders. When I use the term beloved, I mean it. Many people, myself included, don't just like or admire his fiction. We feel a rare affection for it. I could go on, but I'll spare him. Born in Texas, raised in Illinois, and educated as an engineer at the Colorado School of Mines, Saunders turned to literature in his 20s, receiving an MA in creative writing from Syracuse University in 1988. A decade later, he came back to his alma mater, where he now teaches, among other things, a class on or with the help of Russian writers. More on that in a second. First, his own fiction. He is the author of the collection Civil War Land and Bad Decline, Pastoralia in Persuasion Nation, 10th of December, as well as the novel Lincoln in the Bardo, which was awarded the 2017 Man Booker Prize. His latest work is A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life. This is the book that Dea and I, both products of the former Soviet Union, will now grill him about. <coughs> no grilling. Welcome, George. No grilling at all. 
If George anything, said, step away. The grilling word scared him. He's in the yard, but I'll answer <laughs> on his behalf. Very good. So expect no grilling. This is going to be just a pure heat, but light as well. Anyway, the book does the grilling for us. It's so full of self-interrogation and second looks and afterthoughts. And it's also so wide ranging and so varied that it almost answers every question before I can put it. But I'll try. I'll begin with this. You write near the start that the book, which grew out of a course you've taught for decades, is both for writers who want to refine their craft and for readers. What can readers gain from these long peaks behind the author's curtain? What does knowing about the making of these stories do for readers? Well, the main thing I hoped was that it would just excite them enough to go back to some of these writers. And maybe, you know, what it did for the reader and me was to kind of reinvigorate my interest in reading. I had a period where I was on screens too much and stories, including these Russian ones, went a little flat for me. So they were yielding less sort of sensory associations and that alarmed me a little bit. So part of this was just to go back and read basically nothing but these seven stories for a year and see if my reading mind would come alive again. And it really did. So I think that was a part of it. And as I was working on the book, the thing that I really enjoyed was the thrill in a really confusing era, you know, with COVID and the end of the Trump years and all that, of just going up to that little writing shed every day and just saying, okay, it's me and Chekhov or me and half a page of Chekhov. Let me really concentrate on this. Let me see if I can see what's happening. Then let me see if I can articulate it and revise it and revise it. And something about that mode of concentration was really deeply fun. And it kind of reminded me that anything, when we study anything that's been done well, there's kind of an ancillary effect. We believe more in our own analytical abilities. We believe anew in clarity and truth and so on. So it was some kind of a, almost like an extended meditation experience for me over that time. So I hoped it would have sort of the same effect on a reader of the book. I want to talk a little bit about the class because that was the foundation of the book. That's where you first sort of started teaching these stories. And a lovely thing about the book is that you make it plain that this is a sort of a collaborative effort. You're talking about, you know, yourself going into the shed and reading, but part of it has also come out of conversations with your students and with other professors. So can you tell us a little bit why you started the class, why Russian literature and just a little bit of a history of the class that you teach at Syracuse. Sure. You know, I got my job there in 96 or 97. And I was working as an engineer at the time, had never taught on the graduate level. And sort of late in the game said, oh, yeah, and if you, you're you going to teach the workshop, which I felt okay about, but you also have to teach this thing called a forms course, which is to the same MFA students. It's literature for writers. So kind of like, what can we steal? Or some way of, you know, not really approaching the stuff quite so academically or thematically, but just approaching a body of literature in a way that supposedly helps the students write better. So I kind of panicked. And after I finished the first book, I'd been reading a lot of Tolstoy. And I thought, okay, I love this literature. Let's use the class as a sort of welcome mat for myself to get into it. So I just said, I made up a syllabus, probably about half the stuff I'd never read, but wanted to. So that was really just a kind of a marriage of convenience. I just thought, I always loved the Russians. I loved Dr. Zhivago. I'd been to Moscow in the 80s, and I just had a kind of what felt to me like a karma connection with these writers. So I thought, okay, let's use your job as a way of getting better informed. And then it went well in just the way I hoped it would, which is that we use the stories as kind of almost like corpses on the slab, kind of like, okay, let's just use this as an example story and see what we can learn about the form and taught it for 20 years. And as you suggest, you know, I mean, this is 20 years of the best young writers in America. So if I went in with an idea that was a little half-baked or facile, it would get purified by the heat of the class. And over the years, 
you know, you teach something over and over again, you sort of see where the pulse points are. You see which way you should take the conversation. You can kind of almost anticipate the way it's going to go. That was it. And in a sense, that 20 years was kind of rewriting the book in a certain way. And the nice thing about that class and those students is that I kind of begin by just confessing I'm not an expert in Russian lit. And my only claim as a writer is I have been able to get published. So that's what I have to offer. Let's treat these stories as if they were written in English originally. I'm not sure these are the best translations. Then just treat it as kind of a symposium on the form, I guess. Yeah, I want to return a little bit later to the question of translation because it's a very interesting one. But let's stick with the stories first and the selection of stories. Which of these authors came to you first? So how did you begin to build the syllabus? Where did you find the stories that spoke to you and what order? If you can remember well, that. Yeah, I know that Gooseberries was, well, I think actually probably Master and Man was first because my mom gave me a, an anthology of Tolstoy when I was in engineering school. And then I heard, as I, I described in the book, I heard Toby Wolf read Gooseberries one night in Syracuse and that turned me on to Chekhov. So it was kind of a, and I think I when I went to put that syllabus together, I had sort of, you know, Dostoevsky's greatest hits and collect the stories of Chekhov. And I just kind of scanned through those. And then in the real class, there'd be about 40 stories in a semester. So these seven were the ones that over the years had just really been either difficult classes or explosive classes or times when, uh, you know, the student and teacher become one in kind of perplexity. There are a lot of other ones that were good too, but these were the seven that always, the way I knew to put them in the book was during a semester, whenever I would look and say, oh, look, next week is Master and Man, I would just know it was going to be a good class. And that was true of all seven of these. So in the end, it became kind of a Rubik's Cube because I had about 12 that I really wanted in there. And then you're like, well, in some of my essays, I'm repeating myself. So let's we have to choose one or the other. Some of the stories were so good that all I was doing was just praising them, which is not really... Death Alive and Illich should be in there, but it's so long that it would have been half the book. So kind of expediency at the end. You know, you mentioned that this was sort of, you built the class out of a sense of convenience. But in the introduction to the book, you write that these stories also make you think of fiction as a vital moral and ethical tool. I think that's how you put it. I wanted to ask you about that. What do you mean by that? Can you talk a little bit about what that means for you? Yeah. I mean, I came to fiction kind of late and from kind of a weird working class angle. So it always seemed to me that what fiction was for, or at least the fiction I liked was for, was to sort of give me some direction in how to live or, you know, what was the story of America? What was the story of the world? What do we think about good and evil and so on? And a lot of my early reading was very much didactic, you know, Robert Persig or Ayn Rand or that kind of thing. So the Russians, I think, were the first, it was the first literature that sort of fit that idea for me. I could read Tolstoy and Chekhov and kind of say, yeah, you know, they're talking about human scale problems. They're talking about emotions that I felt and so on. So that was kind of the beginning. And I, I also, when I was in Russia back in the 80s, I was right before Brezhnev died. And I remember having you know, a lot of romantic ideas about Russia and was invited to this kind of house party. And it was the house party for my dreams. It was maybe 10 or 15 people my age in my 20s at that point. And they had, you know, things were kind of rough and they put their money together and bought a meal, a beautiful meal. And then we just drank vodka and talked about writing. And they knew so much more about English literature than I did. I remember one guy who was a venereologist, and he said he was a, a good doctor for bad diseases. And he got up and quoted George Bernard Shaw Lang. So there's something about the, you two can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that the Russian, if there's such a thing as a national attitude towards literature, 
was that it is a spiritual pursuit. It has something to do with big questions with how to live and so on. Whereas, you know, the American literature that I knew, yes, of course it did, but there was also something a little bit personal about it, you know, a little bit about a celebration of the individual or something like that. So I'm not really sure. What what do you think? Did that ring a bell with you? I think that you've said something that many, many visitors to the big cities and the former Soviet Union, especially perhaps more so than Russia today, noticed, which is that literature was taken very seriously, especially when one's access to it was severely limited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not surprised to learn that the American authors or British authors spoke to these Russians or these Soviet citizens in the way that the Russians speak to you, because they were the authors on the other side who had greater freedom, who spoke about Mm. things that couldn't be spoken about here. So there is that relationship, I think was a very fertile one and very important one. On the other hand, I'm also struck by what you say about an early interest in Anne Rand. She came right out of the Russian tradition herself, Mm -hmm. being also an emigre. So yes, that didactic quality, that's been a component of Russian writing from the 19th century on. I think you're absolutely right about that that sense that the literature ought to teach you how to live. It does make Russian literature somewhat unique. Um, Beautiful, thank you. Yeah, I will say that the selection is wonderful, the selection in this book, perhaps because the lessons aren't straight. There's a difference between didacticism and writing that offers lessons. Could you maybe reflect a little bit on that? What saves a story from being excessively didactic? Right, Um, that's a great question. What I've noticed in these stories is that they often are about how to think. They're not giving, they're not, you know, you don't turn the crank and it tells you an answer, but it will bring a question into your mind. And then, especially with Chekhov, he'll answer it in multiple ways. And then he just kind of shrugs and and walks off. So the result is that the question gets enlivened and deepened. And I always become a little bit aware of my facile early solutions. That in itself is a huge thing. And, and you know, that is how to live, you know, <laughs> be suspicious of your facile early solutions. So that's really fascinating that Chekhov had that ability. So that's where didacticism, you know, I think he said a story or a work of art doesn't have to solve a problem. It has to formulate it correctly. That seems to me really lovely. And of course, that's somehow or another, it's related to revision and to the way we work on a story, because most of us, I think, will pose a simple problem and solve it in a facile way in an early draft. That's kind of what you do. Then you come back and go, well, that's I left everybody out of that story. Nobody's really challenged. So then revision could be seen as a way of deepening the question and then sort of running ahead and ruling out the two easy solutions. Now, that's a strange direction to move in because you're moving in the direction of uncertainty. You know, the story is not cranking out an answer. But in the process, there's a lovely moment. I've had it in a few stories where you, you write yourself out of your own certainty into, it's almost like a, It's a more intelligent voice of yours asking a more considerable question. And that's a really lovely, addictive kind of feeling. It's very beautifully put. I think you're absolutely right. Literature doesn't teach us what to think, but how to think. Yes, yes. In that, it seems like you're going back to this, the relationship between a reader, writer, and that the book is meant for both. But one of the main questions that you pose at the beginning is, are there any rules for fiction? And for writing fiction in particular. And I do think you do lay out some rules in the book and the question of revision that comes up, but could you answer that question for us? Are there rules for fiction? Yeah, and I'll invoke an old engineering idea that a rule is you must, a law is maybe something different. You know, a law says Mm. in this environment, this is the way things work. 
you can do what you like, but you can't, you know, you can't disregard the law of gravity, for example, the law of conservation of energy. So in what I think is that in story world, you know, if you pick up a, an eight page story and you understand it's a work of fiction, there are not rules that we know because anything can happen, you know, and any writer can succeed in some strange pursuit. But there are, I think, extant laws that say, well, given that I start out once upon a time, you are expecting certain things. You're going to respond with pleasure to certain things. You're going to shut the book in boredom and other things. So the question I'm really asking is, well, can an individual writer for herself get into relation with those laws? So you're sort of taking the set of your gifts that you know the individual writer has, and you're putting them in the room in which those laws are in effect, and you're trying to make an accommodation. So I think escalation is something we we just expect in the story. And what I mean is if I say, you know, I woke up this morning and it was a nice day. And then about 11, it continued to be a nice day. And at noon, it was a fine day. You know, already you're bored. So it's not any kind of a dictate, but it's just an observation of conditions. So those are the kind of things I'm trying to just sort of imagine myself, like when you walk along a lake and you're kind of stirring up the mud, you know, and the water gets a little murky. It's like that, except, you know, the water would get clear, (laughs) but just to stir up these ideas for any young writer to say, yeah, you know, I do have to get in relation to escalation. I can deny it. I can pretend it doesn't exist, but we all know that story that doesn't, you know, that gets stuck in exposition. So my thought is anything we want to do that's huge or political or esoteric or uh, experimental, even those things are subject to these laws. And so it's kind of useful to just acknowledge it maybe, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. It does. Yeah. So we've spoken now about certain immutable characteristics of fiction. A question I wanted to ask you is in the course of teaching these stories, this two decade journey with writing, how have the social circumstances, both your personal circumstances and the countries, changed your readings or the discussions of these stories in your classes? One answer is amazingly, they haven't much, but the last time I taught, which was about three years ago, I picked up on a first wave of kind of almost, I feel to me, almost knee-jerk objections to the stories on what seemed to me sort of simple, like they're sexist. Yeah, they some of them are. They're old-fashioned in their craft, right? There's a kind of a, a set of kind of, I would say, academic objections that, of course, you can make to stories that are over 100 years old. But in that case, there were two things to do. One is acknowledge it. You know, I mean, that seems fine. But also to say, okay, if you find a story sexist, tell me where, and that's a great exercise for everybody. And so that was really helpful. And after a while, I think what happened in the room was that people go, okay, we're dealing, it's like watching a really old movie. You understand that the motion's a little jerky. There's no color. Then after a while, your eye adjusts and you're looking at the really important stuff, which in this case is just the narrative, you know? So I think it's always been pretty good. And part of my teaching approach too, is to always bless and use objection. If someone hates a Tolstoy story, that's just as good as if they love it. But my job is to turn it around on them and say, be specific about where and why. That's going to be just as healthy as praising its strengths. I think when this comes out explicitly in your book is in relation, as you sang to a Tolstoy story, Master and Man. And you have a very, you know, you broach this subject because in your reading of the story, Tolstoy does not 
do as good of a job. It's a masterful story. It is obviously, you know, whatever. There's no point in proving that Tolstoy is a genius on this podcast. We get it. Um, (laughs) That there is a lack of interiority to the man when it comes to the story. But you point out that the master is given a lot of interiority. And so one of the ways in which you handle this discrepancy and that it can be pointed out as classist or a moral failing in some other ways, is that it's also a technical failing. And I thought that that was a very interesting way to approach it because it becomes more about the process of writing rather than a failure of moral imagination. Right. But maybe it's both. I suppose it could be both. Well, I mean, as you say, you know, everybody that reads that story in the class is just floored by it. And we're not judging these stories, but we are trying to use them for every ounce of edification. And so to my way of thinking, it's really a lovely self-indulgent experiment to say, hmm, could War and Peace have been any better? You know, Romeo and Juliet, what would you have done? It's a free, you know, it doesn't cost anybody anything. Tolstoy's dead. He doesn't care. So to just sort of say, and again, the intention is always our own stories. You know, we're going to try to address thorny interpersonal things ourselves and political subjects. So we really need to be good at the fine tuning of these stories, which is always a line-to-line thing. So in that story to say, just to make the observation that some of the most beautiful writing in that story is internal monologue by the landowner, sort of a quasi-Tolstoy surrogate. When we go to the peasant, there is not a commensurate internal monologue. So just to note that is good. That's an important thing to be able to say. You can count the lines, in fact, you know. Then to say, all right, now, is there any beautiful transcendent artistic reason why he would choose to do that. There could be, you know, and some people in the class have argued that there is. Are there sort of extra textual reasons why he might have done that? Sure. Maybe just culturally he's can't or doesn't feel like trying to imagine an intense internal monologue of a peasant. Maybe he feels that the peasant doesn't have one. Maybe he feels that the peasant's internal monologue is impossible to represent in prose. I think that's the interesting conversation to have only because it ultimately it's going to relate to your work. You know, when I go to write the story of a right winger, I'm going to be inclined to admit his internal monologues because they're hard. But then the question should be raised, does that then put my story out of balance somehow? Is that a form of authorial condescension? So anyway, these kind of questions to me are just endlessly fascinating and they don't really contain judgments as such. They just contain almost like if a musician was listening to a a mix of a Frank Zappa song and was able to turn down and turn up certain elements and go, oh, is that interesting that, you know, the cowbell really makes the song or whatever, whatever it is. Well, that sounds right for a Frank Zappa song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if there's that cowbell in any Frank Zappa song. (laughs) Yeah, Blue Oyster Cult, certainly. Zappa, maybe. Um, (laughs) They're the best. They are the best. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been listening to a LARB Book Club conversation with George Saunders, author of A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life. Let's uh, talk about this because, you know, you've, you've laced this interview as you have every interview you've given with uh, humor. And humor seems to be a very big part of your practice both on the page and I think in in life as a lens for life. And it occurs in this book too. Not only do you crack really good jokes, but you you often cite in comparison to these stories, the films of Chaplin, for instance. Could you talk a little bit about what humor has given you? I sense that it it may be a kind of freedom. 
No, Boris, that's a very perceptive question. For me, as a young kind of working class person wanting to be a writer, I first suppressed humor. Uh, I thought it was kind of low, you know, and not, it wasn't Hemingway-esque. And then my long journey has become getting more comfortable with it. Because for me, it's it's absolutely what I go to in moments of happiness or stress or sorrow even. So it's something I tell my students is that the writer you end up being on the page probably isn't going to be a complete suppression of the real you. It, it's It's an accommodation of your actual tendencies, whether you like them or not, to the form. So for me, yeah, there was, there was a moment when suddenly I thought, oh, you don't have to keep the funny out. You actually just have to find a way to make the funny more truthful and more authentic and, and tune it up. So, yeah, and I think that's, you know, after teaching the young writers for 20 years, that's the most interesting part is when you'll meet a writer who has got certain tendencies in person and you see the way that she charms other people and works with them and assuages their anxieties or whatever she does. And then you turn to the work and sometimes you can just see that she isn't comfortable enough with some aspect of herself to let it into the work yet. Or you see this often with class origin. You know, there are students who came from really edgy places and are a little embarrassed about it. And so they only write from the last two weeks because they don't want to go back to that. And it's one of the blessings of the job is one to be able to posit that and then to try to find loving ways to allow them to get back to that material if they need to. And the funny thing is you can do it almost exclusively with line edits. If a student has sort of shown part of who she really is, even in one paragraph of a story, there's a way to kind of shine a light on that and make her more comfortable with it. That's a long way from your question about humor, but yes. Not, not at all, not at all. It's, 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 that's exactly what I was, was hoping to hear, this kind of almost psychoanalysis of, of the page, you know, punching up the qualities that you see in, in yeah. these authors off the page. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's a, it's funny how the whole thing, I mean, I don't want to get too new age about it, but there is, for me, a way in which the whole artistic trajectory is to try to, to bless whoever you were when you started, whoever you are, to, to not leave any of it out to try to somehow through the art convert those things into universal qualities. So for example, if somebody's funny, well, like Gogol, you know, Gogol's funny. I, I expect he was funny in person when he let himself be. So somehow through his genius, he makes a story that's funny in exactly the way the world is, a comic in the way the world is. That sort of transmutation of a, a provincial local in a person into the, a universal quality that anybody even all this time later can pick up and feel that's really the the, uh, the big goal for anybody what and even if that quality is i'm very shy i'm very quiet i'm very reserved you know refined that can be a lovely literary quality you know that you might say that's carver you know or maybe it's even yeah. henry green a little bit you know absolutely in the book you tell a really lovely story about how you sort of became more comfortable with being a writer on the page. And as you were saying earlier, you were you were working as an engineer, you're working on oil fields. And the writing that you were doing at a certain point was quite different than the writing that was eventually published and that was rightfully awarded and celebrated. And would you mind telling listeners the story about how you became, how you sort of became more comfortable with yourself on the page? Yeah, I mean, well, the short answer is I wrote a 700-page piece of crap that was very serious. And, and uh, <laughs> it was called La Boda de Eduardo, which I think means Ed's wedding. And I, you know, I was, I mean, at the time, there was nothing ironic about it. I was just cranking away at this kind of Malcolm Lowry meets James Joyce doorstop of a book. You know, I finished it and I had, you know, you had just a little bit of a doubt. Like, I, 
I wasn't exactly overjoyed, but at least I'd finished it. And I gave it to my wife to read. And she just did what we hope any honest reader would do, which is she just got about four pages in and dropped her head into her hands like, oh, boy, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So that was bitter. But it also that 30 percent of my mind said, oh, thank God. Thank God somebody else agrees with me that this is no good and then i went into one of those beautiful funks you know where you just i don't know if you guys have been there but where your your work stops working for you you don't even have a shred of hope you don't have any you know sometimes you, you fail and you just hop right up and have a new approach oh i know what i did wrong this is just like i don't know maybe this is the wrong thing for me wouldn't it be kind of fun to quit and i just drifted around i was working you know this engineering company so i went to work and i just sort of turned that part of my mind off and then I was on a conference call that I was supposed to be the note taker of. And I just, out of kind of boredom and a little despair, started writing these little Susian poems, kind of absurdist poems, and then illustrating them just real quick. Not even thinking about it, just for fun. I mean, my inner Hemingway was quiet. My inner James Joyce had gone missing. To make a long story short, I brought those home and Paula laughed out loud, read them inadvertently and laughed out loud. And just that feeling of having somebody really have a, a visceral positive response to something you've written with no fakery, you know, none of that thing that your friends do where they go, Oh yeah, I could see it. it's just really, you've definitely put in some time on this. These are definitely marks on the page. You know, there was none of that. It was just pleasure, you know, and it sort of threw a switch in my head and I was like, all right, fuck it. If I, I don't care if I'm a serious writer. I don't care if I'm a modernist. I don't care. if I, I just don't want to be boring anymore. And lo and behold, I knew how to, not be boring. You know, I'd been a musician for many years. I had been funny in person. So that was a weird feeling of the floodgates opening just because I, in a moment of desperation, gave them permission to open. And, you know, it wasn't easy after that, but what I, the big difference I found was that I always had strong opinions about what I was doing. Like if I say, okay, my goal is to entertain you and be funny. There's not a question of what should stay in and, and what should be taken out. Usually, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, if somebody puts you in a room full of diamonds and shit and says, can you separate these two? You go, yeah, of course I can separate those two. Uh, so, so it was a big, big moment. And was, you know, in, in a corny sense, it really was truly self-acceptance. And the funny thing about it was it wasn't all that sweet, actually. It was a little bitter to be, to say, okay, Mr. Joyce, Mr. Hemingway, Ms. Wolf, I have to leave you now and go over here with Monty Python and, and Richard Pryor, because I, I get those guys, you know? Yeah. Someday you'll have to tell me what it's like to feel someone like your work. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, boy. oh. <laughs> no, that was that, that was a wonderful, uh, wonderful story of finding a voice. And uh, voice is such a big part of what we're looking for in these in these tales. I think nowhere more so than in the nose. So how do you help your students discover that voice? You said that that's simple line edit can sometimes do it. What else do you do to help students discover their voice? The one thing is, and this was done for me when I was a student, is just be appropriately indifferent when appropriate. You know, if somebody gives you something that's blah, you know, I have to kind of resist my urge to say it's better than it is because I love my students and I want them to be happy and I know how hard it is. But what I've learned over the years is just a nice, yeah, a shrug is very useful for people as ambitious as my students. If they bring something and I say, yeah, it's, yeah, well, yeah, that's a rebuke. You know, so that's one thing. But the line edits are actually huge for me because I'm not really that great at talking about stories, their stories in the abstract, or maybe I'm too good at it and it's empty. You know, I just yap about it. I think you can find a true, a truer voice by 
by subtraction. What muddies a voice's cliche and habitual speech, you can redline that stuff right out of there. I mean, and suddenly at least what you have is sort of stark and minimal and to, to the point. So that's one way to do it. Um, the other way is just, you know, occasionally when someone does uh, blurt out something that sounds like them, uh, you, you bless it. You know, you, 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 so, and that's the hardest thing. I think for when I was a young teacher, it was hard to say, you really kicked ass on page six. I wouldn't change a word that makes you feel like you're not doing your job. But as I'm teaching more and more, you think that's really it. If you, if you have a student who shines for one paragraph in a story and I can put the spotlight on that and even, uh, sort of subdue my negative remarks and the rest of it, that, that does a lot of work because the person knows it. You know, I, that's my theory is a person generally knows when their their prose is shining. And so the authority figure shock can sometimes just be to say, yeah, you're right. You know, your instincts are exactly right. I mean, so much of this is about coordinating the world's response to one's inner response. The happy time is when your inner response seems to be completely in sync with the world's. That's great. But, you know, for different reasons, those two things fall out of sync. And especially when you're a young writer, it's that terrible feeling that they're not in sync at all. And then what we do is we start relying on our on intellectualizing. You know, this book, this story I'm writing must be good because it's about patriarchy or whatever it is. Then you're then you're lost, you know. But so, so I think so much of it is is just getting your sense of prose in line with. Now, here we get into a problematic thing with the world sense of the prose. That's. I'm not sure that's hard. You know, I don't know what that means exactly, but it is true, you know, for me that I can hit a certain mode and know that what I'm writing will appeal to somebody. So you could just see this whole writing career as, as the fine tuning of that, you know, that relation. It's the, the training of intuition. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and as I say in the book, it's also, you have a great friend in iteration, like your intuition doesn't have to be, it's not like you're going to be shot if your intuition is wrong today you get a chance to go back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And then the kind of weird thing that I found, which is true, is that as you write more and more, then over time, that iteration will be leading you in a, in a certain direction. When I was young, I would rewrite something over and over and it would just be different, but it wasn't, it, it didn't seem to be cumulative, but now with more experience, I, I just keep rewriting, rewriting, and the thing starts to move off kind of, of its own accord, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I I was wondering as I was reading the book, and and now that we're talking about voice, is that there's you know I, I was wondering about your relationship to authors who reject the the more traditional ways in which narrative and escalation and composition um, happens in stories like mm. these. You know, like somebody like Kathy Acker who might deliberately be averse to something like escalation or have really sporadic escalation um, right. or authors who are sort of averse to, <laughs> averse to a narrative or averse to a standard kind of world building. Um, so I was, as I was reading it, I was just curious about your relationship to writers like that and, and your relationship to reading writers like that. Cause it can be yeah. a tough read, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, no, I'm totally, you know, I, my method, or if there was such a thing as I understand it, does nothing at all to exclude anybody like that. And I love reading them. It's just like, if you said, um, you know, in music, there are certain melody and harmony are sort of the, the baseline, but atonal music is thrilling, 
but atonal music is partly thrilling because of our expectation of tonality. So if a writer is flouting or, or pushing back against these expectations, that's it's almost like being an atheist as a form of being religious. You know, <laughs> I'm saying you can't deny the expectation of most readers, but you can play with them. One way to play with them is to totally give in to their expectations. Another one is to totally deny it. I, you know, the writer Frank Conroy came to Syracuse one time and he did this beautiful thing. He drew a big arc on the board. On one end, he drew a W for writer and on the other, an R for reader. And he said, okay, let's just pretend that every work of fiction falls somewhere on this arc. So the one that's down here by the W is all for the writer. He doesn't care if anybody can even understand it. It's totally self-referential. That might be something like Finnegan's Wake might be over here. Okay. Then on the other side, R for reader, the writer only cares that the reader be allowed in. And that might be something you find in an airport or a real accessible thriller. He said, now you're thinking that I'm telling you to put it right in the middle. Not at all. He said, put it anywhere you want. That's the joy of it. Just when you put it there, understand that there are repercussions and take responsibility for that. If you, if you write the airport thriller, God bless you. Don't cry when the critics don't love it. If you write the intensely self-referential moment of the first seven minutes of your birth, all with the letter L, you know, that's great, but don't be surprised when your uncle doesn't want to read it. So that I thought that was very liberating to say, of course, we can do anything we want, but whatever we do, given that there are these kind of laws, I say, then we have to sort of accept the, you know, so, so if something is a tough read, that can be part of its charm. You know, I, that's true with Finnegan's Wake. So I don't think there's any real contradiction. And I hope I did, in the book don't seem to be saying that, you know, only straightforward honoring of escalation is interesting because I really don't think that's true. No, I, th- I think Gogol's Nose is a is a good example of what you're saying. That's a that's a story that's very awkwardly on the arc. It actually, maybe next to the arc, it wasn't allowed on the arc. Right. Um, <laughs> so the the authors, by the way, that that you feature are Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy, and Gogol. And uh, Chekhov and Tolstoy are represented by two stories. So it's a it's a small selection, a small canon of Russian nineteenth century writing. And you explained why you you made the choices that you made. Have you given thought in in recent years to expanding that that little canon uh, or the forty stories that that you teach in your course? Are there new works appearing in translation? Maybe a works, for instance, by women authors that uh, were writing uh, at the same time, but but uh, were not translated until the seventies, eighties, nineties. Sometimes not until a couple of years ago. Generally, what would happen is every time I I would teach the class every couple of years, and each time I'd try to refresh my ideas about it. There was a time where I taught. Uh, into the 20th century. And um, so, yeah, if I would, I would also, again, part of my thing is I, I have to remind myself that it's certainly in a book like this, my goal isn't really representation because I'm in the class. It kind of is. And certainly I would include women writers, but even their representation takes a temporary backseat to the, well, really to what I can teach the best, you know? So, but if I was going back again, I think I would start from scratch and read, you know, spend a few months reading the kind of works you're talking about and just updating it because that never goes wrong. You know, when you, when you widen a class, it never hurts. <laughs> I'll put in one plug. I, I hope you don't mind, but, but there's a, no. there's a, a really delightful book by a contemporary of Tolstoy's, Sofia Kvashinskaya. And I, I think you'd really enjoy it. City Folk and Country Folk is the name of the novel. And uh, it was translated by the uh, equally wonderful Nora Favorov. Uh, it's available through, through Columbia University Press. I think you'd really you'd really enjoy it. Was the book published contemporaneously with Tolstoy? 
Yes, it, 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 yeah. it appeared in periodical form, you know, as, as many of these novels did. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for that recommendation. And, you know, if, if, if you get a few minutes and you want to write some more recommendations, I'd love to have them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask you a question? This is a painful one for all translators, but uh, whenever <laughs> translation gets discussed, we, we always cringe. But I'll, I'll ask anyway, you know, I think it's wonderful what you said that you read these stories as if they were written in English. The only thing I would object to really in this book is in one or two places you focus on the losses. And in my view, all of these translations are net gains in the extreme, mm -hmm. uh, even the competing translations that you cite. The texts exist that otherwise would not exist. It's not made for scholars. It's made for readers just like you. And the fact that you've carried these stories with you for lo these many years testifies to their power as English language texts. So I think that the uh, really the only edit I would the only line edit I would make is 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 to strike out a couple of instances in which you uh, you know focus on the losses. Um, mm. Although you say that you invited one of your colleagues to guest speak at the at the course. And uh, I just know the scene. I can imagine it so well. I know Slavicists and I know what they do. They point to the two <laughs> or three things that are lost on the first page and make you feel that you'll never have a, a, a good look at the original. But of course, that's not that's not the case. You have the great riches tricked out with all new delights in English. And uh, that's that's all but, thanks to the hard work. Can of the I, I'm sorry, can I ask you to give me your take on Especially Gogol, it, yeah. it, it makes me sad because I have a feeling there are, there's magic in his work in Russian that we aren't getting. Could you approximate that for us? For example, who who in English writes somewhat like Gogol? I would say that uh, if you can imagine Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener amped up um, wow. with psychosis, then, wow. then you, you got yourself a pretty good approximation. I'm not the first one to compare of Gogol's stories to to uh, Bartleby, but I think that's a very very close that's mm. a very close analogy. And uh, if we're looking a little bit farther afield, then E. T. A. Hoffman in in good English translations from the nineteenth century would be comparable. So he was a, he was a late Romantic. Melville's richness, Melville's evident joy in the lexicon. That's what we get with Gogol. But of course, there's so much more to Gogol: the paranoia, the obsessive uh, character traits. But for, just for the texture, I think Melville is is awfully close. Is, is Gogol funny? Is Gogol funny? In he Russian? is. He is funny. Absolutely. I can recommend a really funny translation uh, yeah, as well of uh, the the latest translation by Oliver Reddy, uh, which is just a, a very small selection of stories from Pushkin Press uh, called "And the Earth Sat on the Moon." Is hmm. uh, it, it really brings brings a lot of that humor into English in a very organic way doesn't try to be funny like the Russian. It's just funny like right, the Russian. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really beautiful, you know, because as somebody whose work gets translated, and I spend a lot of time on, you know, for example, for me, there's a real difference between normal English and working class English. And, oh, yeah. and the, the things you can communicate with just a choice of a verb, and then you think of sending that to Greece or to Spain and you know you don't you don't know you hope that the, yeah, the person yeah. on the other end is aware of that and and can find a corollary and it's it's really rich and beautiful. And for a translator, the great thrill is finding that corollary. That's that's the the great hunt we're on. You know, we're in, in investigators for the corollary. Um, when I was translating uh, Isaac Babel, that was finding that idiom that was so closely related to the idiom that I knew from childhood uh, right. was uh, was an overwhelming joy. What a nice job. 
it's a really nice job. <laughs> so, um, and you've done a very nice job with this book. I, I think that it's uh, brought Russian literature, which goes through phases of popularity, back to the fore. And uh, for that, all lovers of Russian literature should thank you. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. It makes me happy to think so. Thanks so much, George. Thank you for listening to this special recording of the LARB Book Club. If you would like to receive copies of books from writers like George Saunders and have conversations on their works, become a member today at www.lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Again, that's www.lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. And thank you for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.